Welcome to the Unfair Advantage podcast for church planters. My name is Andy Wood, and I will be your host. Our goal with this podcast is to help you win early and finish strong. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome to the first episode of the Unfair Advantage podcast. I'm so excited that you're joining us. This is going to be a great journey together. We're going to grow. We're going to encourage one another. We're going to gain some practical tools that help us get the ball down the field in our local ministry context. And this whole podcast for me personally is something that comes out of my own experience. Now, wanted to let you know a little bit about myself. I I have been planting churches uh, with my wife for close to 20 years. Uh, I've planted actually two churches. The first one, my wife Stacy and I, we started while we were going to seminary in Arlington, Texas. We started this church on a local university's campus. It was pretty much all college students. Uh, we fumbled our way through. We made a lot of mistakes. And the, through the whole process, we were asking the question, okay, what will we do different next time? What, what lessons can we gain from this? Now, after that experience, we launched a church that maybe you've heard of before called Echo Church in the San Francisco Bay Area. And we've been here in the Bay Area since 2009. And we've seen God do some miraculous things along the way. We've made a lot of mistakes along the way. And I look forward to sharing many of those with you in our journey together. But you know, one of the big lessons for me is when I get in a room with another church planter and I hear their story, I hear their successes, I hear their failures, oftentimes one piece of wisdom will spare me thousands of hours and even hundreds of thousands of dollars. And you're going to get that in this podcast as we bring some incredible leaders on. In this first episode, you're going to hear from Carrie Newhoff, who's the founder of Connexus Church just outside of Toronto. But before we go there to that episode and the interview, I want to make sure you know about a couple things. Uh, first of all, I want to make sure that you know about Food for the Hungry. Now, Food for the Hungry is partnering together with us on this podcast. Great organization that is helping people in poverty. And it's a great opportunity for partnership for both planters and pastors. So we want to encourage you to go to their website, fh.org, for more details to hear about Food for the Hungry. Also, I'm excited that we're partnered together with the Art of Leadership Network. And in particular with Carrie Newhoff and the Art of Leadership Academy uh, is a series of resources that Carrie and his team have put together to help pastors and church planters. So if you go and you check out some of the resources, the website on that is theartofleadershipacademy.com. So thanks, Carrie and uh, Carrie's team. Thank you so much for partnering together with us on this podcast. And then finally, I want to make sure you know that we are doing this in conjunction with The Ascent Leader. The Ascent Leader was founded by Sean Morgan, and it's an organization designed to help pastors and church planters through cohorts. Now, these cohorts gather together with nine leaders, and we're going to talk more about that at the end of this first episode. Uh, but Sean has been a great encouragement to me personally. He's a great leader. Uh, they've actually launched two other podcasts, Leaders in Living Rooms and Craft and Character with Steve Carter. And so we're a part of a tribe together that is helping leaders get better. And we are so thrilled to be able to be the church planting leg of that tribe. So welcome. Welcome to the tribe. We're excited. And what God's going to do both in and through us together as we journey Let's jump into this first episode with Kerry Newhoff. He's the founder of Connexus Church. Also, 
um, the founder of the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, kerrynewhoff.com blog, one of the greatest resources for the church in this day. And I believe that you're going to be encouraged through our conversation together. Well, Carrie, welcome to the first episode of the Unfair Church Planting Podcast. We're so glad to have you with us. Oh, Andy, it's so great to be with you. Thank you so much for having me and throwing the dice on episode one, man. Hope this works out. Uh, we went for the best on the episode one. There you go. Well, don't, you, you got some heavy hitters lined up, don't you? We do. We have Ray Johnston coming. We're, work, we're working on Rick Warren. So maybe if you want to help me with that one. Put in a word. Um, yeah, yeah. You got to get Groeschel at some point. You got to get Groeschel. He'll yeah, do it. Absolutely. So, Kerry, um, most church planters are familiar with you, but I'd love just to talk a bit uh, about your kingdom role right now and some of mm. the things that you're excited about that you're working on. Well, right now, I'm leading a little communications company, uh, unimaginably called Kerry Newhoff Communications. It was a hobby I started about a decade ago, just blogging and then eventually a podcast that kind of grew into my full-time work. So that's what I'm doing right now, and we exist to provide resources for leaders, church like church leaders, pastors, and business leaders to help them thrive in life and leadership. So I do that and uh, do some speaking. I write some books and uh, also do a podcast. So that's what I'm yeah. doing these days. But for 20 years before that, I was lead pastor of a local church. Yeah. And originally you were a church planter. Mm-hmm. And so I'd love to, I'd love for you to share that story with us of how you started Connexus Church and where it originated. Well, Connexus was sort of a church plant that came out of a work that I started doing, which was like a replant in 95. So we launched Connexus in 07. Uh, But I first came up to this area 27 years ago to start at three little tiny mainline churches. And I would do the circuit on Sunday morning. And so it's called a three-point charge. Michigan, where you're originally from, is full of them. And uh, it it was like a mainline church. And so they were really small. Like the first church that I would go to on a Sunday had six people in average attendance. The middle church had 14 and the mega church had 23. And that was a good Sunday. So I came as their student. I was, I was studying in Toronto and I was supposed to be there a year and a half. Well, fast forward 27 years later, it's still, I saw some of them on Sunday. Some of those original people, there's not a lot of them left. Um, but we saw a lot of growth after four decades of stagnancy and decline. And then we outgrew the original buildings, which were 19th century facilities, built a new building, but then kind of came up to, you know, there was a bit of mainline drift going on and I'd gotten to know some people at North Point and we thought it was a better position for the future to start over again. And so those people and I left the denomination, left a building that was almost paid for that we had just built four years earlier and started over again as a portable church called Connexus. And initially it went great. And then everybody left, and then we had to rebuild out of the ashes. And uh, but you know, these days it's a church that three or four thousand people call home, and I have the privilege of of still attending as uh, as the founding pastor, no longer the lead pastor, but stepped out of that about six and a half years ago. So that's a thumbnail. That's great. I'd love to talk about some of those early days for you. Uh, oftentimes, when people tell their story, you know, you get the high high level story that you hear at a conference. But if you're sitting down for a cup of coffee with a church planter, there's always a story behind the story. And I'd love for you to share it. Like, what's the, what's the story behind the story of Connexus Church? Well, a lot of uncertainty and a lot of missteps to get there. Um, 
you know, I felt a call in a ministry at age 24, was a Christian, had, had dedicated my life to Christ, was going to be a lawyer. I was in law school. And so I went to seminary, very uncertain that that was the right step, but sensing a calling, having left law. And, um, and then I didn't think congregational ministry was going to be right for me. So went around the Toronto area, which is where we were living at the time, and, and um, try to get a job. And I think I was rejected at three churches. So three churches are like, yeah, we don't want you. And then, and then I'd forgotten about this until very recently. I don't think I've shared it publicly, but one of the churches, one of the three original churches in, that I went to in 1995 that did accept me, first of all, I won by one vote. So that tells you how popular I am. Secondly, one of them fired me like two years into it. They're like, ah, he's too radical. So they they decoupled from the three-point charge and had a retired guy who I was good friends with. He was in his mid-70s. And then at the last minute, year five of my ministry, when we were going to build a new building and amalgamating these churches that were growing, they're like, okay, we'll come too. But they were still, I, they'd, under my leadership, they'd grown from six to about 30 people. But then a number of them really hated all the change. So they kind of said, no, nah, we're done with you. And I thought, okay, well, I guess they're done with me. So I went on with the other two. And then, uh, and then Guthrie was the name of the church. They decided they wanted back in. So we let them back in and they merged to become. But I forgot that I got fired until like, I don't know how it came up. You just blocked that stuff out of your memory. So if, if you've been fired or rejected a lot, I'm very familiar with that path. And there's hope for you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So yeah, I didn't, didn't exactly. I haven't applied at a lot of churches because the track record is not very good. It's easier <laughs> to start them. What were some of the things that you were doing that they considered extreme that uh, eventually would make them want to fire you? Well, looking back on it, what wasn't extreme? I mean... You know, I come in with, I'm, I'm a big personality. And, you know, having my, my predecessor was 81. So just having somebody literally five decades younger helped. And, you know, we, we kind of reclaimed the scripture. Um, we were focused on, and I did gradual change. I didn't come in and like introduce, you know, guitars and drums overnight. We kind of worked up to that over a three to five year window but it was pretty clear that the writing was on the wall. When you've got that few people going to your church, it's like last one out, turn out the lights. And I would, I have a lot more accumulated grace and, and people skills now, but I think I was probably pretty raw, pretty rough. And, and some of them just like, I, I think it, I don't want to over-spiritualize things because people always over-spiritualize things. But I mean, I remember one Sunday in particular at the small church that, decided they didn't want me as their pastor preaching and feeling like my words were falling off as bricks off the mm. pulpit. Like this is, these are dead ears. And my wife swears she felt the pew shake one day and it wasn't somebody shaking it. Like it was kind of weird. And then, and they were, they were just opposed. Like the, the, the woman who kind of ran the church, cause there's always someone who runs small churches just hated me. And to be honest, I didn't like her either, but you know, what are you going to do? You can't really say that as a pastor. So anyway, when they said, yeah, we're done with you. We don't want, we don't want you anymore. I'm like, okay. And I just went with the two churches that wanted me. And then they went to a retired, another retired guy who was a friend. But yeah, I changed, I changed a lot. And, you know, you probably burned some bridges I wouldn't burn today. But it also took a lot of courage to turn three dying churches around 
because I mean, if it was like, oh, you know, incremental change gets you incremental results. So if we didn't change everything, we would have gotten the same results we were getting. So I don't know. And God somehow uses it, right? Somehow uses it. So it wasn't, it wasn't immoral. It wasn't like anything that was scandalous. It was just a young leader who hadn't learned EI particularly well. Bull in a China shop. Talk a little bit about that, that whole process of like when you stepped out and in that early, like six to 12 months. So here you are, you're, you're mobile. You've got this group of people. You don't know really who's going to come with you. What was that like? Like, what was the mental struggle like? What was the day-to-day kind of so battle planting for Connexus, you? So you mean in 2007? Yeah. Well, yeah. here's the funny thing. We had a, in August of 07. So we started Connexus November 1st, 2007. In August of that church, we had, there were, oh, 1,500 people who would have called that church home, 800 people in attendance by that point. And so the amalgamation we did seven years earlier had really worked in our terms. And we had a 96% vote in favor of leaving the denomination, even if that meant abandoning our building. But we had like a really nice building for the denomination that I was in. It was sort of the crown jewel of the time or one of them. And we were the fastest growing church in the country in our denomination and one of the largest. So, I mean, we had a lot of momentum. So I just thought everybody's going to go with us. But we live in a rural area, like we're an hour north of Toronto. So if you come to where I live, which is 10 minutes from where the church I led, that was the predecessor of Conexus is, like you have cows and fields and everything. So it was a real anomaly to grow a big church. And we were the biggest building in town. There was no other building in the township that big. So we decided to go north to a city of 100,000 and half the church would go there. And then, or sorry, south to a city of 100,000, half the church would go there. North to a city, a smaller city of 30,000, half the church would go there. And we rented out the theaters, like the AMCs of those towns. So that was going to work. And I, I made a couple of really bad assumptions. I thought people are going to split geographically. If you live to the south, you'll go south. If you live to the north, you'll go north. That is not how it played out at all. People decided to um, migrate relationally. Where are my friends going? And then my denomination decided to keep the building open and continue the church. That wasn't part of the original negotiation, but they pulled that out at the 11th hour. So then people are like, well, maybe we could stay here in this nice building. So we launched with like 900 people. And within 18 months, there were about 350, 400 attenders left. So everybody, you know, you go into this dark theater and sometimes your feet still stick to the floor because of the soft drinks from the night before. You know, we eventually hired a cleaning crew of our own to to clean up, but it was It was really hard, and it was the only time in over two decades of church leadership where I thought, by February of 09, so we launched in November of 07, by February of 09, I'm like, I think this could fail. And I remember telling the the elders that one night, I said, you know, this may not work. And I remember my friend Dave, who I'm having breakfast with on Thursday, he was one of our elders at the time, he just looked at me and he goes, you're not supposed to say that. I said, but it's true. And he goes, no, if you say that, like, you're the guy who says this is going to work no matter what. And I'm like, eh, I don't know. But but it did work. Like we we went down, I think we were down to $5,000 in the bank. And I mean, we just left a multi-million dollar facility. We're down to $5,000 in the bank. And our treasurer at the time said, yeah, this is not good. But I just kind of looked to everybody around and said, look, we lost a lot of people. This is painful for everybody. 
But if you're not willing to invite your friends to church and I'm not willing to invite my friends to church, then we probably shouldn't exist and we should just close the doors. So here's it. We don't have any advertising money. We don't have anything left. Go invite your friends. And if this isn't good enough to invite your friends to, we should pack it in. And at that moment, we started to grow. People went out, they invited their friends, we prayed. It started to grow again and then became, you know, three or 4,000 people eventually, which is how many people would call Connexus home today. So, you know, but it was, it was pretty sketchy there for a season, February of 09, it was, it was touch and go. And I remember the stress because I'm, I'm not somebody who gets sick a lot, but like if, if I took my shirt off, I was just like red blotches all on my chest and torso and stomach. And I'm pretty sure that was stress. Yep. Wasn't sleeping at night. And uh, anyway, yeah, so it got pretty, pretty sketchy. But that's where I came up. That's where I learned the principle. You can do more with 300 aligned people than 3,000 unaligned people. And if all I had was 300 people who said we're in, we could, we could make a dent. And, and they did. They did. They did a great job. We started inviting our friends, and that's when things turned around. It's so good. One of the uh, stories in the Old Testament that I love is the second time that Joshua sends spies into the promised land. Oh, yeah. So, you know, the, the first time there's 12, uh-huh. and then the second time he sends two. And I, I think about that a lot from a standpoint of leadership building teams. Like Joshua's like, I'll take two people with faith over mm. 10 people who don't have faith. And that's so true. When you're planting a church, you want to make sure the people that are with you are the kind of people that believe that nothing is impossible with God. And, and, and the, the 10 spies who, who gave the majority report, in many ways, they were right. Yeah. These people are big. They have fortifications. They have an army. We don't. They were right. And they were completely wrong. Right? But that's what it takes. It takes audacity to plant a church. Yeah. My, uh, my son right now, he just got into lacrosse. So he, oh, cool. he plays at this really uh, great private school in our area. And he's a freshman. He's like 6'4", 240 pounds, like huge kid. And so wow. he, he, he went out and he's like, I don't like how much they run, so I'm going to be a goalie. And uh, after practice last week, I know a couple of the coaches and one of the coaches came out and he said, hey, there's something that you need to know about lacrosse. He said, uh, the goalies, everybody knows that the goalie is crazy. Like that's the position for crazy people. And when he said that, I immediately thought, that's church planting. Like everybody (laughs) knows the church planting is for the crazy people. And I would love for you to talk about, you're around, around a ton of leaders, people who lead really large organizations. And you've been around a lot of people who've started organizations from scratch that are great leaders, what would you say is the difference between somebody who's a great leader of something really large, but maybe somebody who's more wired to start a church or start an organization? What's the, what is the gene or the difference there? Hmm. Yeah. Some people who lead very large multinational, you know, multi-million billion dollar corporations, they're great managers, but they're not leaders. It takes an entrepreneurial zeal. It takes a, uh, like, you know, you want to look at Steve Jobs, Elon Musk, people like that. They started very small and Jobs had to start over again. Like he got it wrong, right? Like he got fired by Apple. And then when he came back in, Apple was hanging on by a thread. And I think he learned a lot about people management in between. 
And but he he what he didn't lose, so he became a better manager, which allowed him to steward what would go on to become a multi-billion trillion dollar brand. But he never lost that entrepreneurial zeal. I remember in Isaacson's biography, you know, people walked in and they were trying to design the iPhone and Blackberry was king and Jobs was was didn't like the keyboard. And he goes, We gotta create something without a keyboard. And someone brought in, you're old enough to remember this. Remember the Garmin Dash GPSs? Oh yeah. I think the story is somebody brought in a Garmin Dash GPS and he goes, Look, this doesn't have any keys on it. Go figure out how to create a phone that doesn't have any keys on it. And they had a million reasons why they were wrong. But it was that entrepreneurial zeal that, you know, that drive that got him into a garage with Steve Wozniak when he was 19 years old that he hadn't lost. So he was able to fuse management and leadership. And Mm -hmm. I think leadership, managers build, managers manage what was already built. Leaders create something out of nothing. And you got to be once in a while, that's a crazy idea. But if you look at most innovations, and I've, I've done a bit of reading around innovations, usually the people who are first to market are not the people who really bring it to the mass market. They're the people, like the iPad's another example. People have been trying tablets for years and they kept failing. It's like, well, we'll take the idea and we're going to learn everything that they screwed up on. We're going to make it right. Like Elon Musk didn't invent rockets, but he figured out how to make it work. He wasn't the first one to introduce satellite or even satellite internet. He's just the guy who's going to 10 exit or 100 exit and make it work. He's not the first mm-hmm. one to dig tunnels, but he's the guy who's going to put tunnels under LA. So if you really think about that, what you're doing as a leader, as a church planter, is you're looking at the different models around you, the kinds of churches that have worked, the businesses that are having breakthroughs, the thing that is right in the cultural moments. And you're kind of amalgamating it into your unique niche, which is probably going to be different from what most churches are doing. Because if you're just doing a cookie cutter of what's happening down the road, you got three songs and a message and everybody else has three songs and a message and your band sounds like their band. You're like, where's the innovation? Like, what are you doing that is different? And we were, when we planted we were about five to 10 years ahead of most churches in our community because we were borrowing. And again, I wasn't being particularly innovative. I just did a tractional church, that model, years before anyone else in our community did. So our band was great. Our communication style was clear. Um, we had a clear discipleship pathway. We simplified our model as soon as, you know, early on while, while most churches were super complicated. So it wasn't like incredible innovation but it was drive entrepreneurship and the ability to amalgamate different strategies and say, well, this will work and this will work, but this won't work because we're in the middle of nowhere, but let's try it this way. And then getting to market a little bit faster. It's the same with podcasting, right? How do we get so many downloads on my podcast? Well, starting early helped and then finding a format that worked helped. Um, So I wasn't innovating. I was just bringing something different into a space that didn't have it. Yeah, that's really good. One of the questions I love to ask church planters, like when they're trying to decide on their calling is to say, like, what in your life have you, have you gone zero to one on before? Like every church planter, by the time they're in their mid twenties, if they don't have a zero to one story, they probably shouldn't be planting a church. You mean and, like, what have you failed at or? Well, just like if you have, you know, you go from nothing to something. Oh, I you, see what you mean. So nothing yeah. to something. I thought you meant yeah. zero to one as opposed to zero to 10. I'm the slow yeah. guy. Like, yeah. so, so like if you, did you do a paper route when you were a kid? You know, that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. Like, 
it's like, if you don't have some stories like that, um, a lot of those guys that want to plant a church, and that's why I love how you started kind of your, your calling. If you don't have a good reason to plant a church, there's, there's probably a good reason to not plant a church as well. <laughs> and one of, the, um, one of the other things I'd love to dive into, um, I love how you talked about not being the, the fr- almost like the first one to bite the mushroom or you know, take the risk and learning from people. Wise church planters are looking for that unfair advantage. And uh, one of the things I love about the Ascent Leader with the cohorts that uh, Sean Morgan and his team with Leaders in Living Rooms have been doing for a couple of years now uh, has been really to help leaders go further faster. And I'd love for you to talk about the advantage of being in a room with other leaders, being a part of a cohort, because I know you invested in uh, some of these cohorts as well. So just mm-hmm. unpack why that's so important for a church planter or any leader in general. Well, let me tell you how great it is, the world that we live in and planting a church in today, because, you know, I'm planting a church in 1995. I'm in a dying denomination, so I'm the unicorn. I got a growing church in a, in a denomination that's declining. I can't go to my colleagues, my peers, and say, how do you grow a church? Because almost nobody was growing a church, and almost all the churches were declining. So I started, my mentors were books. I would just buy books. And we didn't even really, we had the internet, but it was like, you know, web one. We didn't even have web two yet in in the 1990s. So I would just read books and I read voluminously. And then once in a while, as soon as we got a little bit of money, because we were broke, I was went from law to being a pastor, like took a huge pay cut. So I didn't have money to get on a plane. But then I started going to conferences. And for years, what that was like for me was jumping on an airplane and usually flying south because that's where all the growing churches were. So I'd go to Atlanta. I'd go to, you know, New York. I'd go to different cities and Chicago, and I would try to learn from church leaders. And I think what's happened, thank goodness for the internet in some ways, um, and thank goodness for cohorts like what the Ascent Leader does, and I've led a few of those cohorts or at least some sessions for Sean, is all of a sudden you get insider information. Because what I was doing was I was reading a book along with thousands of other people sitting in the back row of a conference taking notes, but I didn't have access to the people on stage. And what cohorts do is they give you access to the people on stage. So what I would have done, I mean, thank goodness, we in 2005, I met Reggie Joyner, who introduced me to Andy Stanley. And I would finally, for the first time a decade into leadership, get into small rooms, 40 of us, 20 of us, 10 of us with Andy, and I'd be able to ask my questions. Well, that was gold. And, you know, obviously over the last few years, I've gotten into a lot more of those rooms. I've been blessed that way. But that's what I think cohorts do. And they are an edge. They are an unfair advantage because you can go and meet peers. Because most of us, most of us really align ourselves by affinity, not by denomination. You're looking for someone who's a step ahead, somebody who is doing what you want to do, and they've done it five years ahead of you, 10 years ahead of you, 15 years ahead of you. You can learn so much from those people. And that's where I think if you have the opportunity as a church planner to go to a cohort, do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The One of the values I think of a cohort is all these mentors that are investing in us, but there's also that side of the catalytic relationships. Mm-hmm. So you get connected with other people. For example, I've been going to a cohort at Larry Osborne's house now for four years. And there's nine guys in it. We, we've gotten to know each other. 
but we know what each other is good at. And so like this last week, I had a leadership challenge. We, we run a preschool. I remembered one guy in the cohort. He's done a great job with preschools. We hopped on a call, 15 minutes of wisdom. So there's so many advantages that come out of that. Um, talk about maybe some of the peer relationships that you formed through like what you were doing with, uh, with Andy Stanley or maybe some other networks, how that's helped you as well, not just the mentorship relationships. No, North Point, that's a great example because, you know, I literally came on board and met Andy as they were starting to launch strategic partner churches. So these were not campuses. They were partner churches. So we were fully independent. Um, but one of the smart things Andy and David McDaniel and the team did is they put pastors into cohorts. They didn't call them cohorts. They called them groups. So I would hang out with guys like Troy Fountain, Sean C., Chris Patton, and others who led strategic partnerships who were doing exactly the kind of church that I would want to do. And I mean, you know, Andy is not sharing, he might share his sermon notes with us, but he's not going to share the org chart that he developed for whatever that's several layers down in the organization. We would share our org charts with each other. We would talk about how are you doing the welcome? What is working in fundraising, right? And that's that peer-to-peer relationship. And, and again, because, you know, we were a larger church for our area, I would meet with the others who, who led churches of over a thousand in our community. But again, they were a bit of a different tribe and everything, and they were great friends. So that trip down to Atlanta and then the video calls, even before everybody else got on Zoom, they were, they were magic. They were, they were so helpful. And I think you need both. You need mentors, you need peers, you need colleagues, you need friends. Because that's where you're getting into the nitty gritty going, well, wait a minute. What exactly did you say during the welcome that got all those people to sign up as volunteers? Can you give me the script? You're not going to probably get that from a mentor. You will get that from a peer. That's so good. That's so good. I'd love to uh, shift the conversation a bit now to talk. If you were sitting down with a church planter um, and maybe a way to frame this. So uh, a couple months ago, I felt like one thing that would be helpful for me in my leadership was to write a letter to myself as a 65-year-old. Huh. And I said, okay, what, what would 65-year-old, now I know you're not quite there, but I said, what would 65-year-old Andy say to 40-year-old Andy? And it was such a powerful experience for me. So I'd love to hear, like, what would Carrie now say to Carrie if he was sitting down for a cup of coffee starting Conexus? Hmm. Your value isn't tied up in what you produce. Probably that simple. Hmm. There was a a drive in me that was unhealthy. I might also add, in this drive, if you're not careful, Carrie, um, will probably destroy you. So be careful. There's another way to get the results you want, but it's probably not something you would naturally do. And I learned all of those lessons on the other side of burnout. And it took me about a decade. I've I've been, you know, my burnout happened about 16 years ago now, but it took me about a decade on the other side of burnout to finally be thankful for my burnout. That's how painful it was, but it taught me so much. And, you know, and I I don't, to be honest with you, Andy, I don't know whether 25-year-old Carrie would have listened. He was so driven. Mm-hmm. And there's this really weird thing where everything kind of gets redeemed. But what I would say is you could spare yourself. Yeah, okay, here's what I would say. This would probably get me. You're going to, 
you're going to push so hard and drive so hard and work is going to provide so much value for you that you're probably going to mess up your 30s and miss some great moments with your kids. And I knew that was happening in my 30s, but I didn't know how to get out of it. And now my kids are 30 and 26. And we talk about it on a regular basis. Two days from now, I'm jumping on a plane and we're all going to hang out. You know, one lives on the East Coast. So my younger son and I are going out with my wife to meet with him. We're going to have a great time together. And, and that relationship, those relationships are restored. They're redeemed. They're great. But I look back on my 30s going, I could have been a more present father. I could have... I could have spent less time at work because I don't think it would have made any difference. I think, Mm -hmm. you know, the difference between 45 hours a week and 65 hours a week is not necessarily more church growth. It's just an unhealthy leader. Mm -hmm. So I think if I would have played the the husband and parent card, dad card, I might've gotten somewhere with me. I know that now and I believe God redeems all things, but why pay that price? Yeah, it's so good. Yeah. One way to think about it is when it comes to growth, there are things that we can do as leaders to maybe make it grow faster than it should, like steroids for church mm. planting. Yep. And there's that's never without a consequence. So it's like, even if I had to choose slower growth now to be running really well when I'm in my 60s and have great relationships with my kids and my wife, it's like choosing now is... Uh, let's go a little, let's not get as much as we could now to get more later. So that. Yeah. I'm seeing that now. Like it's so weird with this, you know, the podcast that I do, we were just, we were in staff meeting this morning and we had 140,000 downloads last week. My, my podcast manager was on vacation on a tropical Island and nobody, we shipped what we were supposed to ship and everything but like we spent about 38 minutes on the podcast last week and we just had these huge results that make no sense. But part of that is, and I had two days off in the mix. Like there's a sustainable rhythm. There's a, mm-hmm. there's a I'm leading out of, out of who I am and a wholeness rather than a brokenness. And you kind of look at those results and go, I don't even know how that happened. Wow, thank mm-hmm. God, thank goodness. I'm glad we were able to help that many leaders but it's not cause and effect. And I think the younger me, and listen, in the startup phase, yeah, I get it. Your first year, you're setting up chairs, you're checking the projector, you're making sure the font works, all that stuff. Like I get it, but that's a season. And you, like I launch books occasionally, about every three years, it seems, maybe later next time I write a book. Like you, you got pedal to the metal, but there better be a date on the calendar. Because if there's no date on the calendar when that insane season stops, it's not a busy season, it's your life. And so, you know, again, you don't necessarily have to have crazy effort to produce huge results. And it's God's kingdom. It's not yours. So I'm learning that. I wish I learned it earlier. Well, I'm grateful that you put a lot of those learnings in a book called At Your Best. (laughs) Well, I'm just trying to save other people a lot of pain, Andy. That's what I'm trying to do. And that's a great book to read in the first year of planting a church. Because Mm -hmm. if you can really frame your future through that lens, it's huge. Carrie, I would love, um, as we wrap up our time, to do something unique if you're okay with it. Sure. Um, I'd love, I love when I'm around other leaders to ask for them if they are, you know, kind of in that future season to pray a prayer of blessing. And I wonder if you would pray a prayer of blessing over every church planter 
who's either deciding to plant a church in the middle of this journey and just ask God to do what only God could do in and through them. I will. Thank you. Heavenly Father, you love every one of us. Every person listening to this podcast, I believe is here for a reason. You called them to this. But Father, you haven't called them to destroy themselves. Some of them are already tired. Some of them are so tired they don't want to admit it. Some of them have fallen for the lie, God, that the only way to get results is to go harder, 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 harder. And that's not, that's not your way. Not all the time. God, I pray that you would remind us that your yoke is easy and your burden is light. Jesus, thank you that you went away and you disappeared and disciples couldn't find you. So I pray for every church leader, Father, that you would give them rest, that you would help them to find a sustainable rhythm, that you would not just build their church, but build their faith, build their health, build their family, build their joy. And Father, I pray that you would do more than you could ask or imagine. The world has all of (laughs) enough troubles of its own. Out of a deep well, out of a deep reservoir, build this generation of church leaders, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, Kerry. Well, what an incredible conversation with Carrie. Carrie, thank you for your vulnerability, your wisdom. Thank you for pouring into us. Thank you for praying over us. Uh, there are a couple of things that I do want to just capture from that conversation. First of all, I want to make sure that you heard how Carrie talked about his relationship with North Point Ministries. God will bring people into your life that become catalytic relationships, and those relationships will help you go further faster. I want to encourage you to be on the lookout for those relationships, uh, to be finding people who are a couple steps ahead of you and people who are 10 to 15 steps ahead of you. And those relationships can make all the difference. They give you wisdom. They give you support. They give you prayers. Sometimes they even give you financial support. And I want to encourage you just to begin to think about who are those people going to be for you in your journey? Now, as you process that, uh, one way to get connected relationally is through what we're doing with the Ascent Leader and our church planting cohorts. And we're going to be launching our first church planting cohort at the end of May 2022. And the way these cohorts work, they're at most nine leaders that gather together. And each time they gather together, they're with a pastor who is a mentor. And then there's another coach. Now, the mentor will host the group at their church or in their home, some some of both. Uh, the first one is going to be here in the San Francisco Bay Area at Echo Church, and I'll be hosting that. And then the second one will be hosted by Sean Sears, the founding and lead pastor of Grace Church just outside of Boston, multi-site church reaching thousands of people. And then the last gathering will be with the founding pastor of Lake Point Church, Steve Stroop, in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, one of the wisest leaders I've ever been around, one who... His coaching and mentorship has given me a tremendous unfair advantage. So I'm excited to introduce you to some of my mentors and good friends. 
And then Mike Hickerson is going to be the coach that goes with these church planters to each of their gatherings. He's the founding pastor of Mission Church down in Southern California. And all together, this is going to be an incredible group. We already have some people that have signed up uh, who are committed to the group. We do have a couple of empty spots or a couple spots that we can still fill. But I want to encourage you, if you are interested to act quick, go to theascentleader.org slash cohorts. We anticipate that these cohorts will fill up rather quickly. Now, also, uh, as we wrap up our time together, I do want to thank again the Art of Leadership Network and the Art of Leadership Academy. I hope that this conversation has been tremendously helpful for you. And there's one last lesson that I want to encourage you to harness and apply as we wrap up our time together. Kerry said, he said, you know, you don't have to lose your soul in the process of planting a church. It's possible to win at home. It's possible to win in your heart and your relationship with God while winning with the church. And Carrie's book, At Your Best, has a lot of resources on this. I want to encourage you to take a look at it. And why I think this is so important when you're starting a church from scratch is because you're setting the culture at the beginning. So you as a church planter, you have the privilege of setting boundaries and setting culture and laying the groundwork for what it's going to be like for your pastors and future staff members. And you're the model, you're the example. So let's get it right. There's so many practical tools out there from setting a schedule to how to handle email to uh, giving yourself some boundaries to say work can only come this far. And I want to encourage you do something with the wisdom that we got together today in that conversation with Carrie. Now, on our next episode, we're going to learn from Ray Johnston. He is the founding pastor of Bayside Church just outside of Sacramento, California. So I want to encourage you to tune in for that one, second episode. Again, thank you so much for joining us for this first episode of the Unfair Advantage podcast. Until next time, we will see you guys on the second episode with Ray Johnston from Bayside Church. Bayside Church.